0: One of the more confusing topics in the New Testament is the subject of the charismatic gifts, healing, prophecy, miracles, and tongues. As bizarre as some of these gifts seem to us, it certainly appears from reading the New Testament that these gifts that were given by the Holy Spirit were a normative part of a Christian life and the experience of the early church. But has that changed at all? Are those gifts for today? If so, how does somebody get them? And what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit? And if you don't speak in tongues, does that mean something's wrong with you? Welcome, everybody, to the Beards and Bible Podcast. My name is Josh, and I'm joined by Gabe. And we're here to answer all your questions about beards, Bible, and everything in between. Hmm. I've always wanted to be an old time radio host. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? You should branch out and start a
1: new podcast <laughs> just called Old Time Radio. It's the Old Time Happy
0: Hour. Here you go, boys and girls. <laughs> everybody gather around your phonographs. The Old Time Happy Hour. Now we got a little Debbie from a little, from a young man just out of Birmingham. His names. I feel.
2: There's probably like, like
0: one hundred year old man that's like,
2: I love it, I love it, thank you, finally.
0: The, oh, uh, what's the uh, soggy bottom boys? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's a great movie, Oh Brother Art, though. Uh, yeah. I feel like, like I. I belong in that era. I was yeah. I was misplaced. Yeah. Uh it's like you've been practicing that voice for years now. <laughs> you know, here's what it was. Alright, I'll just I'll just confess this to everybody. We my my brothers and sisters and I, we grew up in a very sheltered home. And because we were so sheltered, my parents would only let us watch movies that were um had no questionable content whatsoever and so the only movies that had no questionable content whatsoever were like from the 40s and 50s Mm. so like the little rascals yeah and charlie chaplin and i mean seriously like i grew up watching that stuff and so i always would like wonder like mom and dad why don't we have a milkman um you know because like all the old sitcoms there's like a milkman that came by the house and you know, there's the dad with the pipe and, mm. all right, honey, thanks for dinner, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized that it the year was 1992, and that's not how the world worked, mm. but I didn't realize that until much later. So anyway, that stuff gets in you really, really early on, and yeah. So you,
1: you don't practice that in the shower, like, or
0: anything? <laughs> you know? uh, I can either confirm nor deny that. Yeah. There's a lot of talking to myself that happens throughout the given day. Do you, you mm. talk to yourself, don't you?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, it's more of like a keep it between myself and I. That kind of voice. <laughs> I don't let outside of. <laughs> but um,
0: you, you don't just randomly practice your old time no, 1930s radio DJ voice.
1: No, no, no. Oh Okay, should, it's just uh, me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was before we started the uh, recording today. I was just searching online for real life mannequins do you remember mm. um do you remember in college i had this mannequin <laughs> that was very <laughs> realistic looking
0: dude why yeah. did you have a mannequin i just realized i have completely for- forgotten about that um
1: when did i you was get it a, from target no, no 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 when i was a senior in high school we took a trip to colorado as a family and i went to this yard sale and we were looking for like we were grossly ill prepared for uh you know going skiing or whatever we did i don't know we went hiking and backpacking or something and we didn't have anything so we we're like let's go to yard sale and see if they can sell us if we can find some like camping equipment or something because we flew there we didn't have a lot of room to pack stuff so me and my 18 year old wisdom find this real life mannequin sitting <laughs> in this yard sale for 50 dollars But the catch was I didn't have any room for anything else in my suitcase other than this mannequin. So I had to like give everything to Goodwill and fit this mannequin. I paid 50 bucks for him and he was so realistic looking. He was like, he wasn't like a mannequin, like a stiff mannequin you would see in like a grocery store um, or like a a retail store. Uh He was like stuffed with cotton. So he was flexible and he had this face that resembled my face. I remember and, that. Yeah, it was super it
0: was creepy. Super you would leave creepy. him in your bed in college and we would think you were asleep. Yeah. Like Ferris Bueller. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then I would sneak up behind you and <laughs> snap your neck. No. But uh yeah, so it was very realistic. And uh, I love I loved I loved playing pranks with this mannequin. I would like shove him up in the, in my mom's cleaning closet where she kept her broom and dustpan and stuff. And I would shove him like way up inside it so that when she would open the door, he would fall out on top of her and like just, you know, and then I would like lay him on the floor with like ketchup, like squirt all like all over the place, you know? And like when my parents would come home from work, they'd see this mannequin just like, just catch up everywhere and think it was me it just things like that you know like or I would leave um, here's one I would leave him in the front yard with the lawnmower on top of him
0: oh my god! yeah I was
1: I was horrible with this thing yeah I was a horrible human but when we took him to college you remember we would throw him over the balcony. I do remember when that. people were starting to people started they would walk by our balcony and we go up to the third floor and we'd pretend like we were wrestling up on the third floor and then duck behind these columns and then throw the mannequin <laughs> over the balcony. It was so good. It was just people oh I mean gosh. I remember people being in tears over it. You
0: and, know what's uh, funny is you have three sons, I have two sons mm-hmm. and the dumb stuff we did mm-hmm. I know that we're gonna pay for our raising. Yeah. To our Son's doing just as dumb stuff.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just the other day, like my son's, we we were talking about this like sewer pipe that's across on the <laughs> other side of our subdivision, on the other side of this retention pond, and they were like, "Oh yeah, uh yeah, there's a bunch of rats in there," and I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah, I'm sure there are," and they're like, "No, there are a bunch of rats in there," and I was like, "Wait, how do you know?" and they're like, "Because we explored the sewer," and I was like, "Wait a second." <laughs> <laughs> like all of three you did. of you, like you took Micah, the five-year-old, with you. You explored, and there, yeah, there's like these nests and all these rats, like scattered out of. Them. I'm like, wow, that's. I don't know if I'm mad or impressed that you guys. Yeah, were able to no, that's this.
0: that's very impressive. That sounds like something that you would do in college, though, because you were always like, "Hey, there's a body of water. Let's buy a raft from Walmart and go out mm-hmm. on it." And we were like, "Okay,
1: yeah, yeah, YOLO,
0: YOLO." That's true. Anyway, so I'm, I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Then Twoto. Oh. Or wait. It <laughs> <laughs>
1: gets spelled.
0: Oh man. Oh
1: man. So I'm looking for this mannequin because I I want to use it as a as a um stunt stunt mannequin for uh YouTube videos and things of that sort. But also cuz I think it'd be fun to get back into doing like pranks and stuff, but
0: Yeah, no, that's anyways. that's good to go back into the prank game. But your, yeah. your family YouTube video, where would you have space to put in a mannequin I don't know. Video?
1: Yeah, <clears just throat> I would make space for it because it's so important. It's such a vital piece of...
0: Yeah. Um, what if you put the, the mannequin filmmaking. in a kayak and just sent him out and saw yeah. how, and put a GoPro on him and just saw how far he would make it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, one time I, I did set him on this big rock in the middle of a river, and there was a bridge that crossed over, and I just left him there for like an entire day. And I put them like face down on the on the rock, you know, and um, just to see what would happen. And no one ever stopped <laughs> and like checked on this what appeared to be a body laying on a rock in the middle of a river. <laughs> but yeah, oh man, yeah. So that was just kind of reliving the past, looking at these yeah, mannequins. Yeah, that's good. But, that's yeah. good.
0: Speaking of uh, things that are hard to explain, like why mm. you have a inexplainable desire to buy a mannequin <laughs> and prank people. Um, we're talking today about things that are difficult, I think, for some people to wrap their brains around, and that is, of course, the charismatic gifts or spiritual gifts of a kind of nature that are uh, a little bit more bizarre, I think, for some people, depending on your church background. And um, I want to be sensitive to the diversity of of listeners that we have. I mean, there's probably people listening that come from a background where when we say the charismatic gifts, you know exactly what we're talking about. And there's probably other people that when we say that, you don't know what we're talking about. So when we are having this conversation today and we talk about charismatic gifts, we're we're specifically talking about these gifts that the Bible talks about called the gift of tongues the gift of miracles, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of healing. And it seems like what we read about in the New Testament is that these manifestations of the Holy Spirit were kind of a normal part of the Christian experience in the early church. And so there are some streams of Christianity that still believe that these are a normal part of the Christian experience and have a place in the church. And depending on your church background you either have seen that to be true or that sounds really, really bizarre and crazy to you. So, Gabe, in your church background, mm-hmm. what was that like for you? Did you see this gift operate or these gifts operate or not operate? What was that like?
1: Yeah, yeah. I saw those gifts operating in specifically tongues. Uh, okay. If we could focus on that, like I remember mm-hmm. growing up in a Assemblies of God church and a Pentecostal church, and, and yeah, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, basically... During the praise and worship portion of our corporate worship, uh, the you know the music would maybe kind of get quiet, and then someone would very loudly from within the uh, congregation begin to speak in like what was basically an unknown language, an unknown tongue, mm. which is like a series of like incoherent like syllables that no one in the room knew, um, and as far as we knew, wasn't a earthly language. And then that message in tongues, as it was called, would last maybe thirty seconds to a minute, and then there would ideally be like a translation of that of that message um, by someone hmm. else. Uh, although, from, if <clears throat> my memory serves me correctly, although there's some sometimes like the person giving the message in tongues would sometimes give the translation. But yeah, this was a very common thing in my church growing up. Um, there were there were times in church where multiple people uh simultaneously would be speaking in tongues so it was very commonplace for me um when we went to southeastern you know it it is, was founded as a pentecostal uh, school as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. and stacy my wife grew up lutheran and for some reason she ended up at southeastern university <laughs> which is a pentecostal school and was still
0: trying to figure that one out <laughs> yeah
1: yeah well um she recalls like for the first time hearing tongues, that was the very first time she heard someone like actually begin to speak in tongues. Hmm. And it was very impactful for her. Cause she was like, I've never heard this. I, d- I didn't know that that was like still a thing that people do. Right. Um, and she actually like had to, had a discussion and kind of unpack it a little bit with one of her roommates who did grow up in that environment. So
0: yeah. 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 Um, I think in my church background, you know, I've talked about this before on the podcast. I kind of grew up as a mutt. I mean, we were in Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Bible churches, um, had some dealings with the charismatic movement. So I saw the gift of tongues uh, at an early age, but it was never like a normal thing. It was always like going to a. My mom was a, a worship leader and a worship coordinator. So sometimes we'd go to like a tent revival. Mm -hmm. with a Pentecostal church in town. And so she would sing, and then they'd have an altar time, and you'd see people speaking in tongues there. And so, you know, my parents were never against it. They were always like, well, you know, this is... Some people believe the Holy Spirit does, but I never really saw it as a, like, normal, everyday thing until I went to Southeastern, which Mm -hmm. was a Pentecostal Mm -hmm. college. And, yeah, so that was really... Different for me, and I think it was different as it seemed like people could just kind of turn it on and turn it off, and it really wasn't this like extraordinary miraculous thing. It was just kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's what happens. Somebody speaks in tongues every yeah. service. It was like, oh, okay. Well, and, and additionally, like, you know, I kind of had to
1: step back and which I encourage everyone to do and kind of audit their beliefs and their convictions uh, against the Bible and what it says about those things. So, yeah, like anything within our faith. Uh, things get either blown out of proportion or counterfeited or mm-hmm. hijacked for personal gain or pride or whatever. And so yeah, looking back, it's some of the experiences and um, memories I have of, of people speaking in tongues. I can see how there were some things that were unbiblical in their yeah. execution. and yep. um, yeah, so I've had to go back and just study the Bible from, for for its own sake and say okay, what does the Bible say about this topic? And then how does that impact my life and, and, and especially how does that impact
0: how I lead a congregation now? Yeah. So in your current church, how do you mm-hmm. how do you see this gift operate? I mean, how do how do you, you think some of the Christians around you in your church kind of feel about it? Mm. Well, because we practice messianic <clears throat>
1: Judaism and I attend a messianic Jewish congregation that is comprised, oddly enough, of mostly non Jews, the um, <laughs> a vast majority are are not were not raised in a Jewish home. Um, they're all coming from different walks of life and different denominational backgrounds, either, you know, Pentecostal, charismatic, uh, Methodist, um, Lutheran, Catholic. We have agnostics, former agnostics. Um, mm. So so people of all different walks of life, and you're kind of intersecting, those, those paths are intersecting at our congregation. Meanwhile, we're like saying, okay, we're going to express our faith in a way that— um, it is modeled after biblical or first-century Judaism, rooted in the belief that Jesus is the Messiah promised to Israel. So that that is that is a very interesting dynamic, to say the least. So the sure. the idea of tongues doesn't really manifest itself in our corporate worship settings in a very in a, in a public way at all that I have seen. Um, partly because uh, we don't really have a if you, if you were to attend our service, you would understand it a little bit better. It's like a, it's a very liturgical and, and probably more structured service than mm-hmm. what most charismatics are used to. Sure. So there isn't like this moment where there is just kind of like this soaking worship, like very long, drawn out kind of praise and worship, where there is this opportunity to give a message in public in tongues. So if that were the case, that may happen, um, and. You know that that would be that would be interesting as we navigate what it looks like to express this gift of the spirit that, this, that the Holy Spirit gives us. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to see and curious to hear from you how that plays out in your corporate worship as well.
0: Yeah, um, I, I'm I'm kind of our church is kind of like yours in the sense of people come from all types of backgrounds to our church, um, and we are non-denominational but if you wanted to put us in a tribe we'd probably be more of a bible church than anything else Mm -hmm. um so i think one of the ways that we have seen this gift operate and not operate is if you come to one of our weekend services you're probably never going to see somebody stand up and give a message in tongues um Mm -hmm. in the 10 years that i have been a part of our church i think that's happened only a couple of times um and when it does, I think that's, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in trying to figure out how to navigate that. Mm-hmm. But if you come to, like, one of our prayer nights or you come to a prayer meeting, you might see somebody in that prayer meeting who prays, and as they're praying just to them and the Lord, if you sit close enough to them, you might hear them mm-hmm. speaking in a unknown tongue or praying in an unknown tongue. Um, and then if you go to a life group and go to a prayer group, you might hear somebody praying for someone else and say, man, I just feel like the Lord has given me this for you and I just want to share this with you, and we would kind of understand that as, as maybe a gift of prophecy in that moment. Mm-hmm. So I think that you you see this in our church, but probably not in the more corporate gatherings, probably in the more mm-hmm. like intimate um, kind of small groups, home groups type. Um, and I think... <laughs> You know, I was talking to my wife about that this morning. We were getting ready this morning. She said, hey, what are you guys talking about on your podcast? <laughs> I told her. Of course, she grew up with Assemblies of God, so she has, mm. you know, a very similar background to you, Gabe. So mm. she, she told me, she just goes, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people in our church that have never experienced that. And when it comes to this issue of the charismatic gifts and tongues, they're really, really nervous about it. Or mm. they're just kind of like, I have no idea what that's supposed to look like. I've never seen it, never been around it. How does that work, you know? So, you know, I I think there's a lot of diversity in our church about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people who have never experienced it and kind of don't really feel like it's biblical, some people who uh, have never experienced it and are open to it, and then other people who have experienced it and feel like it's supposed to be a normal part of their Christian life. Yeah,
1: and I I think the Assemblies of God in particular, the denomination in which I grew up, overemphasize the gift of tongues. Yes, um, agreed. look at it and analyze it, biblically speaking. Um, and I'm not throwing them under the bus, but I think that the Assemblies of God has made a shift away from that mm-hmm. um, issue because they made it almost a salvific issue that your yeah. salvation should should include the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. Yeah. So it was almost like, Speaking in tongues is connected to a true salvation experience, and if you're Mm -hmm. not speaking in tongues, then there's an element of your salvation in that born again process that's that's lacking. Yeah. Um,
0: So I think, like I said, I think they've kind of shifted away from that at this point. They have. They were. I mean, when you and I were in college, so this would have been the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. That was, as far as I remember, if you wanted to get your ordination through the Assemblies of God, you had to sign a doctrinal statement that said you you believed in that. Mm. That that was a doctrinal distinctive. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not and just making that up. No, you're not, because I remember going through that. Um, you know, I was a English and intercultural studies major, and so that was basically a missions minor. And they were talking about becoming an Assemblies of God missionary, and it meant signing a doctrinal statement. And I remember seeing mm. the doctrinal statement and going, "I can't sign this because I don't mm-hmm. believe that." Yeah. Um. So, but yeah, we'll unpack that. We'll kind of get into that today. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of different understandings about that and I think there's some confusion about that, but we we'll, we'll kind of unpack that and go back to the scripture. So here's the caveat before we go into this. Just like in the last episode, your understanding of this issue probably has a lot to do with your first church experience mm-hmm. So what church you were part of when you first became a Christian, what church you grew up in, That probably has shaped your understanding of this issue of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Just throwing that out there. Mm -hmm. So before we even get started, there are some people that have already got their minds made up (laughs) about this, and it's a close-handed issue. And I just want to lovingly pry your hands open (laughs) and say, hey, let's go back to the Bible, and we're going to mention a ton of Scripture today, so if you have your Bible with you and you want to follow along, I think that'd be great. But we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works, and then specifically about this gift of tongues. So, sound good? That's it. All right. So the big question I think we got to start with before we even begin all this is who is the Holy Spirit? I think for some people they see the Holy Spirit as kind of a retired author, (laughs) like he inspired the Bible and then he went and retired somewhere on the beach. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not my term. That's... David Young, who we had on the podcast a little while ago, he just wrote an amazing book about the Holy Spirit, by the way. And it just came out. And if you are interested in a good book about the Holy Spirit, I can't remember the name of it. (laughs) But I read an advanced copy, and it's great. So anyway, shout out to Dr. David Young. Uh, But the Holy Spirit is not some retired author that was active back in the first century, and then he's retired because he already wrote the Bible. He is God, the third person of the Trinity. He is a divine being with a mind, emotions, and a will. And the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers in three major areas. The first is through regeneration. So Jesus said in John 3, 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then the promise that we read about in the book of Ezekiel is that God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So when we come to Christ, we repent of our sin, we put our hope and faith and trust in Christ, something happens, and it's the Holy Spirit regenerates us, gives us a new heart. We are born anew into the kingdom through the Holy Spirit, and we cannot become a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
1: yeah well and then th- that spirit like if you read on Ezekiel 2636 that that spirit when he says i put a new spirit in you um it prompts us to out of our own volition want to obey his word
0: yeah absolutely so in a sense we can't do this is Romans 8 we can't do the will of God unless the spirit of god is in us mm-hmm. like if we're living just according to the flesh if we're trying to be a good boy scout trying to be a a moral person we're Mm. unable to do it we have to have the holy spirit changing us regenerating us um, giving us a rebirth in order to be someone who wants to obey the law of god we can't do it on our own and so that's the first work that the holy spirit does um but then something else that we see in the scriptures is that the holy spirit indwells the people of god or another word for that is the holy spirit fills the people of God. So like there's this picture in the old Testament and, and Gabe, you could probably speak about this more of the spirit of God in dwelling the tabernacle and the temple and the presence of God was there in the temple and the tabernacle. And that's how the people of Israel knew that the God of Israel was who he says he was, is that the presence of God was there. But the Bible says in first Corinthians six, 19, that our bodies are now the temple of the Holy spirit. Um, mm-hmm just like the presence of God was there in the tabernacle in the temple, and the presence of God was in the ark, now we have that indwelling Holy Spirit of God in us. Um, Ephesians 1 says that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So it's this picture that we are dwelt by we are filled by um, the Holy Spirit of God and that's a, that's an amazing thing yeah you
1: know the, the, anytime we see God's presence manifest it's always represented by fire hmm. and you know like there was a pillar of fire that that dwelt above the tabernacle and later above the temple that was the what we call in Hebrew the Shekinah, the the Shekinah. And it would reside. That's that's God's presence. He's like, I'm going to use a physical element to represent my presence. And that element is fire. Mm-hmm. So when we see that individualized in Acts chapter 2, um, you know, in the day of Pentecost, um, that fire is kind of like individualized and comes to rest in each one of the believers. And it's like that, that we're like being—it's almost like the, the temple being decentralized into each and hmm. every— Believer, and now Paul picks up on that, basically in one Corinthians six, like you said, and saying, you know, that your body is a temple; your body is the dwelling
0: place of that fire, so to speak. Hmm. So, almost like um, that pillar of fire that the people of Israel saw in the wilderness, and then also the the fire in the temple from the altar, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. And you know, the the ancient tradition is that when God descended on Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments, to give the Law on Mount Sinai, that um, the it the, the uses the Hebrew that they saw lapadim, lapadim are like torches. And the ancient tradition is that these tongues or these torches of fire actually rolled down the mountain and surrounded the camp of Israel. Hmm. And that's what really freaked them out, and they were really terrified by that. But it was yeah. also ancient tradition that when God spoke from the mountain, that his voice... Simultaneously broken to seventy different languages for all the mixed multitude standing at the mountain to be able to understand. So it's like the very beginnings of this, um, you know, reversal of 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 Babylon, you could say, and the scattering Mm -hmm. of the languages, but also a precursor to what would happen in Acts chapter two.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So the Holy Spirit indwells us, but the Holy Spirit also empowers us as believers for service and to live the victorious Christian life. Hmm. So Jesus, in the book of Acts, said to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then we read all through the New Testament, especially the, the letters of Paul, about the work of the Spirit. And in Romans 8, Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then in 1 Corinthians 2.13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So this like picture of we can't live the Christian life unless we are being empowered by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. We can't serve God in ministry. We don't have the kind of boldness in our own flesh. We don't have the kind of wisdom and clarity to present the gospel to people and love people and point to Jesus in our own flesh, we need the power of the spirit for all of that. we can't do it without the spirit. Um, and I think a lot of people unfortunately miss that, you know, that this is all about just kind of muscling up and, and us just trying to get there through our own strength, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I'm looking at acts four and teaching on acts four this week and it's, you know, you, you hit on boldness and the Holy spirit, one of the, the, Main functional roles of the Holy Spirit is to give us the ability to speak the message of the gospel, clear, clearly articulate the message of the gospel, and to do it with boldness, even when we know it's going to cost us something great. You know, like yeah. that's that's what we see Peter and John doing and the other apostles doing in Acts four, and they go back and they pray and they say, "Wow, we we just faced some of the the first persecution of our movement," and immediately what they do, they don't pray for the persecution to go away. They don't pray that their movement would become mainstream and accepted by the religious authorities. They pray for that the Holy Spirit would give them boldness. I think it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, that is. Well, there's, there's two other phrases I think we need to clarify before we talk about the charismatic gifts. And that is the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then there is the phrase be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I think some Christians use these phrases and these terms interchangeably. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think, this is just me, I think categorically these are two different things. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you see in Acts 2.38 when Peter says to the church, and I'll pull out my Bible, because uh, they say, what shall we do? They, You know this because you just taught on this, Gabe. Yeah. Um, what shall we do, after he talks about the gospel, and he says in Acts two thirty eight, Peter said, "Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." So this idea of responding to the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit is kind of what is being described in Acts two thirty eight. And the response to the gospel was being baptized, right? Yeah. In John three five, Jesus talks about um, being born of the Spirit it's kind of the same type of concept of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Um, So John 3, 5, he says to Nicodemus, um, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the idea of baptism all through the scriptures is kind of our inauguration into the life of Christ. And so, The way that I think this phrase is presented in the scriptures is kind of this idea that baptism in the Holy Spirit is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. It's an inauguration into um, the life of Christ. And you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates us. So... When people say, hey, come get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I know you are saved, you were saved a long time ago, but now you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, I don't think they're using that phrase correctly. I just don't. Mm. Because baptism is always described as immersion, Mm. like we are dipped in, we are covered by, we're introduced to, um, and I think what Jesus was describing is... And Acts 2.38 is describing as beginning and being inaugurated into the life of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah, and one of the things we do to help differentiate the two
1: with people who are new believers coming into our congregation is that we will, um, this this is kind of an old ancient tradition from a a text called the Didache, and basically what they would do back then in, in the first and second century is they would immerse people in water, then bring them up, and then all of the congregation, the community would come and lay hands on them and pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit at that point. Mm. So we see in like Acts 8 and Acts 9, Acts 19, it says when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So we, you know, every time you see someone being baptized in the Holy Spirit, like in Acts 8 and 9 and 19, it's connected with the idea of laying hands on them. So, um, you know, we do that. We will baptize in water. We'll walk up and just right there. We're all, you know, they're present. We'll all gather around. The elders will lay hands on the per- person that was just baptized and we'll pray. We'll all, as a congregation say, you know, something along the lines of, um, you know, may they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, for the, the sealing of the redemption and for the, you know, to, to receive the gifts of the Spirit. Hmm. So, um, Yeah, it is like these two different stages, almost, of this process of being born again, I think are very Hmm. important.
0: Yeah, and I I think that that's different from what we see of this phrase being filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So the Bible often will refer to, you know, talking about boldness, like when Stephen, the uh, first martyr of the early church, Mm -hmm. when he gives his speech before the Sanhedrin, it says that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and he had boldness, right? So that's different from being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit is like your, again, inauguration into the life of Christ, where the Holy Spirit comes into your life and regenerates your heart and gives you life and awakens your heart to understand the gospel and believe in Jesus. And then to be filled with the Holy Spirit is where the Spirit empowers you for boldness, for service, for renewed worship, for increased holiness, for special fruitfulness in ministry. This is not a one-time event that happens, but this is an event that happens over and over and over again in a Christian's life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And and I think that's why Ephesians 5:18 it says be filled, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you go back to the Greek, it's actually present continuous tense. It means be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm. So do it every single day. Be being filled.
1: Nor, nor is being filled with the Holy Spirit exclusively New Testament kind of thing. Um, mm, we see yeah. tons of people filled with the Spirit. That's true. Right? And, the, and it empowers them to go before. It's always in connection, it seems like, with going before uh, a an official or a leader who does not have mm. the fear of God in them. So you're given like this spirit-prompted boldness to go before someone who thinks that they are the King of Kings— and they are to tell them that they're not, basically. So, for instance, like, in Genesis 41, Joseph goes before Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh gets to know Joseph a little bit and realizes that this guy is special, and he says, um, Pharaoh says to his servants, Can we find a man like this who is filled with the Spirit of God? Wow. So, yeah, it's like, you know, Daniel, Esther, like, the list goes on,
0: all these people who— Don't you see this in the book of Judges, too? Like, yeah. it talks about the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and— that's why all these judges could do these different yeah you know, like amazing jo- things. Joshua
1: said was spirit yeah. filled with the spirit of wisdom for mm-hmm. Moses had laid his hands on him so we see that connection with hands again and, and, and being yeah. filled with the spirit but yeah that's that's something that's continuous it's a theme all through the Bible of being filled with the spirit of God hmm. um but yeah the idea of prophesying at the utterance of the spirit or giving you know some sort of um Oracle let's call it for like a better term um, the spirit is something that seems very prominent within the New Testament yet yeah. did did occur from time to time in the Old Testament like Moses and the 70 elders they began to prophesy and hmm. you know the spirit of God came upon them and there's even there was two that were prophesying
0: outside the, that circle but yeah yeah that's interesting well and the big the big thing that we see in the scriptures, in the New Testament specifically, is the way that we know that someone has the Holy Spirit is what Paul called the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. Mm-hmm. So, yes, spiritual gifts are evidences that someone's filled with the Holy Spirit, but more than that, what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16 through 18, is you you will know somebody by the fruit that they bear. Mm. And he even said, hey, beware of false prophets. They will come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, mm-hmm. He warned us of the man of lawlessness that can perform false miracles. So miraculous manifestations are actually not signs that someone's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's actually the fruit of their lives. Mm-hmm. And Galatians five twenty two twenty four 24 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So we can know that someone is living a Spirit-filled life and that we are living a Spirit-filled life if we manifest these supernatural byproducts of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And first and foremost, it's not some miraculous gift. First and foremost, it's things like (laughs) self-control and love and holiness. And, And that's kind of the evidence that the Spirit is in us and the Spirit is filling us and that we're being guided by the Spirit. And I think that's something that um, for fear of throwing a denomination under the bus, I think that's something that I wish would have been more emphasized in the Pentecostal world when I was in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it that was not shown as evidence of the Holy Spirit.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you see people give a message in tongues that um, lack consistently lack in some or all of the fruits of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important barometer that we use to measure the health of, you know, s- you know ourselves first and mm-hmm. foremost. Yeah. But yeah, I can, I can recall, um, <laughs> it's kind of a funny memory now thinking back, but there was someone in, you know, my dad was the pastor of our church growing up. And I remember, um, someone stood up and was giving a message in tongues and they were going on and on and on. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> then they, I think they began to translate that message in tongues. And I remember my dad taking the microphone and standing up on the platform and saying, maybe he was a relatively new person or something, but I remember him saying, sir, go ahead and be seated because now you're speaking out of your own flesh. And like the, wow. you could just hear like a pin drop, you know, <laughs> it's like, just, it really stuck out in my mind.
2: but
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, okay, fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence. Jesus says, "You'll know them by their fruit, right? You don't see an orange tree producing apples." Mm-hmm. So somebody is saying, "Hey, I'm a Christian and I'm just filled with the, filled with the Spirit," and yet they're producing not love, joy, peace, patience, kind of. Then they're they're not. Doesn't matter what they say. But then we see that the Scripture references through six different passages the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so this is where we kind of get into some differing views on what the Bible actually means by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So there's six passages and many of these passages mention some um, very practical gifts like wisdom and serving and preaching and teaching and things like that. There's about 19 gifts mentioned at least. Um, there are places when it seems like the gifts of the Holy Spirit are kind of whatever the Lord gives us. so one of those is the gift of singleness which I've, mm. I've never heard anybody <laughs> pray for that <laughs> gift. But, um, Paul seems to see that as a gift in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, but I think where we get into the theological diversity mm-hmm. are the four miracle gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians, and that's mm-hmm. the gift of healing, prophecy, tongues, and miracles. Um, and so there are three theological viewpoints on how do we view those miracle gifts. So the first is a cessationist viewpoint, and that is that the Holy Spirit indwells and works in the lives of all believers at the time of salvation, but these miracle gifts, that's healing, prophecy, tongues, and miracles, those, those went away, those ceased with the apostolic age and the canonization of Scripture. So when the last apostle died, and then the Canada scripture was sealed, those gifts went away, and their proof text for this concept, I really don't think a lot of cessationists actually know their proof text, but here is their proof text. Their proof text is 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verse 8. It says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As, as for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. So they take that text as if to mean... Those things were written about in the New Testament as if they were temporary. They were just for that age. They're going to go away. Um, And then once the perfect comes, that's what it says in verse 10. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So, okay, the perfect is Scripture. Mm. So because now we have the perfect revelation of God through the Holy Scriptures, we don't need that gift anymore, or we don't need those gifts anymore. Does that make Mm. sense? Yeah. So that would be called the cessationist viewpoint. This would be people uh, in a lot of um, more conservative traditions. So I would say a lot of um, a lot of Baptists, a lot of um, I'm trying to think of other denominations, a lot of Churches of Christ. Um, You're also seeing this in some liturgical—I think there's a really interesting intersection between the charismatic renewal and liturgical traditions, so I don't think it's necessarily all liturgical traditions, but you see this mainly in a lot of more conservative denominations. Yeah, so I just pulled up a list real quick. Um, Historically, the Catholic, Methodist,
1: Moravian— Moravian. uh, Moravian, yeah, sorry. Uh, Confessional Reformed and Presbyterian, much of the Mm -hmm. Anglican traditions have been cessationist.
0: Okay, yeah. And some of this is changing by the way some 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 denominations like i I hesitate to say the Southern Baptist because the Southern Baptists have become a lot more accepting of the spiritual gifts in the recent years, but historically they have been a cessationist denomination, but that's kind mm-hmm. of changing, yeah, so that's the first viewpoint, a cessationist viewpoint. second viewpoint is the charismatic or Pentecostal viewpoint. This is where Gabe and I uh cut our teeth, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, And that is that not only is the Holy Spirit emphasized, the miraculous gifts are emphasized. And there's a very different distinction in the charismatic and Pentecostal world between becoming a Christian and being uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the way that distinction is kind of fleshed out is someone becomes a Christian, this is at least in the Assemblies of God, and the Holy Spirit is received at a later time after salvation. It's sometimes called as the, the second blessing. Mm. And tongues are seen as the evidence that the Holy Spirit has filled someone. And their proof text of this is usually the book of Acts. Acts 2-4 is one. Um, and again, that's the day of Pentecost, that when the Holy Spirit—let's um, see, Acts 2-4— it says and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance so if you and and okay so in some pentecostal denominations it's seen as you get you got to get filled with the holy spirit and then you're filled with the holy spirit and you get your prayer language you get your tongue and that's a sign, that's a sign that you have the holy spirit some pentecostal denominations go so far as to say unless you have spoken in tongues you're not saved you're not born again Mm -hmm. you have to speak in tongues or you're not born again because you can't be born again without the holy spirit
1: yeah and this is really prevalent i think in in like the word of faith circles it is Um, Mm -hmm. you know just you you have a um you're now given this supernatural ability and you need to exercise that publicly um which which has a grain of truth in it but the but the way in which um it's overemphasized and demonstrated is is often unbiblical.
0: Mhm. Well, and something my wife and I were talking about this morning is when you grow up in that world there are two categories of Christians. There are Christians and then there're super Christians. Mm-hmm. And if you speak in tongues you're a super Christian. You've got all that God has for you. And if you don't speak in tongues or can't speak in tongues or never have spoken in tongues or belong to a tradition that does not speak in tongues, then you're just, you're middle of the line. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. not, you're nothing special. You're not cream of the crop. But we speak in tongues. So we are cream of the crop. Mm. We know the Lord and we know the power of God. And you don't. (laughs) So nanny, nanny, boo boo. Um, We were in a Pentecostal prayer service one time it was when we're on a missions trip and it was uh this was a couple years ago, this wasn't that long ago. And um somebody came in to our missions team and was like, Hey, has everybody received the baptism? And Jenny and I were like, Oh gosh, because we knew exactly where this was going. And um, you know, we had some kids from our like youth group from our church that were kind of like, What's the baptism? And Jenny and I looked at them because we know they they all knew the Lord. They'd all been baptized. They all were walking Mm -hmm. with Jesus. They'd all been born again. We're like, yep, they've received the baptism. And like they have, and we're like, yep. And I'm like, okay, because if you've not received the baptism, you're like Mario without the mushroom. (laughs) But then if you receive the baptism, and what they meant by that is if you start speaking in tongues, then you become like Mario with the mushroom. Mm. I'm like, man, what a prideful and arrogant way of viewing this spiritual gift. Mm -hmm. and what a way to get people to fake that spiritual gift if they've not really received that spiritual gift, to tell them that... You you
1: saved yourselves like six hours there.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Just Just go ahead and say it, yeah? So we've got the cessationist view, we've got the charismatic and Pentecostal view, and then the third view is the continuationist view, and that is that the Holy Spirit uh, comes into believers on the day of redemption... So when they are saved, when they come to know the Lord, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, or they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, rather. Um, But continual and fresh dwellings are sought, and so someone that holds the continuationist view basically believes that miracle gifts are still available, but not everybody will manifest them. So they are distributed to different members of the church as God sees fit. So not everybody's going to speak in tongues, not everybody's going to prophesy, not everybody's going to work miracles. It's it's a gift that God gives as he sees fit, and not everybody has to do it. Um, so that is kind of three broad views, and of course you're going to see tremendous amount of nuances mm-hmm. within those views. Um, so where do, where do you fall? Um, I'm probably more in the continuationist camp. Mm. I, I see when Paul says, and we'll talk about this here in a minute, when Paul says, not all prophesy, not all, mm-hmm. that's 1 Corinthians 14. He's asking a rhetorical question to this church about, does everybody have the same gifts? And it's a rhetorical question with the obvious answer being no. Um, This is 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, let's see. Um. Let's see. So he's talking all about this idea of tongues of prophecy and he's giving people directions on how to do it. Um but he's saying basically that everybody's going to have a different gift. And not everybody is going to manifest the same gift. He says this. It's actually 1 Corinthians 12. He goes, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. Mm. Not everybody speaks in tongues. Not everybody possesses gifts of healing. Not everybody interprets. So God gives us different gifts, and not everybody's going to have the same gift. So I don't think everybody speaks in tongues. Some people mm-hmm. don't. Some people never will because the Holy Spirit's never given them that gift. Yeah. So when you pressure people and say everybody has to, you're going to get a lot of people faking it. So that's where I land. Where, where yeah. do you land with that? I am a cautious continuationist. <laughs> but no, I
1: am right there with you because I, I think um, I remember growing up. You know, we would have these evangelists come through the church and and they would they would um, call everybody up front and lay their hands on different people and, and pray for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence, obviously, of that is that you start speaking in tongues. So they were almost like half evangelists, half like tongue-speaking coaches that would, <laughs> no, like I'm serious, like they would put they would put their hands on your head. And I remember mm. standing there as like a 10-year-old and they would, you know, kind of like rattle your skull a little bit as they're praying and, and like yeah, praying yeah. really loudly with the microphone right there. And so the whole church is hearing them praying over you and watching them praying over you. And you just picture like 20 or 30 people lined up shoulder to shoulder and they're rattling your skull, you know, like, and right, they're praying right, right, for right. you. And it's very, it's very like, uh, I don't know, like, I, you just, you can feel all eyes are on you. yeah and so they're going down the line and, and the person that's being prayed for then begins to utter these syllables into the microphone and, then it's like, okay, mission accomplished. Let's go to the next person now. And they would just kind of do that down the line. And so when you, when they get to you, you know, I can remember, I was like, I, I didn't have anything like nothing came out and I didn't know, like, am I inadequate? Like all these other people down the road did this. Is there something missing about this Hmm. experience? Am I in sin or something like that? And yeah, to this day, I've never spoken in tongues in that sense. And um, but I do believe that God heals. I do believe that God, you know, sometimes gives people a gift of uh, a word of, of knowledge about a situation or prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say that, that the charismatic and Pentecostal world has taken that and, and blown it completely out of proportion. It's yeah. kind of like kind of like a, like a pendulum, you know, like, um, Christ says that you, you're going to worship me one day in spirit and in truth. And I see the Pentecostal, charismatic world being really way over in the spirit realm and not enough truth and being Mm -hmm. grounded in the word. And I think a good balance between those two is very important.
0: Well, and Jenny and I were talking this morning about how the emphasis in the charismatic and Pentecostal world, if you've ever been in that world, is on the experience of a worship gathering.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So -hmm. the emphasis is on what you feel in that room. Mm. And you've got really a mode of music going on You've got a very uh, persuasive and kind of um, larger-than-life personality who's commanding the room with a microphone, Mm -hmm. calling people up. Everybody's watching them. Everybody's expecting something from them. And then you've got sometimes thousands of people in a room, and they're all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Psychologically, that's exceptionally powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's this psychological phenomena of groupthink where if you put – a thousand people in a room and everybody starts laughing, you're going to start laughing too. You don't know why you're laughing, but you're laughing, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't necessarily mean something supernatural is going on. It could be that you're caught up in the psychological fervor of the moment and you feel what they're feeling too. This is why people at Elvis concerts would faint, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So what happens is you emphasize the spirit. You emphasize this experience that somebody has, right? And you see people supposedly speaking in unknown languages. You see people supposedly getting healed. You see people supposedly getting these prophetic words. And then it's only until after that you're processing what you just saw and you're starting to try to figure out how much of that was true and how much of that was me just kind of getting caught up in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. And so often the narrative that gets... I think, peddled to people in the charismatic world and the Pentecostal world is, dude, just go with it, man. God works in mysterious ways. you got to have faith.
1: Yeah, and in those circles, there's very little emphasis placed and teaching placed on everyday holiness. Mm -hmm. Um, And when, when you walk out of this room and you walk out of this worship experience, when the warm and fuzzies and the goosebumps leave you, what do you then do? And how do you balance your budget? How do you restore your marriage? How do you raise your children? How do to you love stop looking
0: at porn? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. you know i'm I'm reminded of a big revival that happened in the city in which we went to college in Lakeland, Florida. Mm-hmm. and um, it drew tens of thousands of people on a weekly basis. And the speaker was just that very charismatic, very dynamic. Um, and yeah, you get these big rooms full of people that were um, whipped into this frenzy. And maybe some of them, it was a genuine move of God, but yeah. the lack of teaching on everyday holiness and practical obedience to God's word, the lack of truth that was being presented there—it was all, it was all you know, spiritual gifts. It was all manifestations. It was all this and that. But there wasn't any like, okay, now let's let's talk about how to rightly divide the word of, of yeah. God. Now, so Absolutely. you know that obviously ended very poorly for the leader of that revival and that speaker mm-hmm. because, um, you know, there was just a lack of
0: emphasis placed on that. Yeah. And I think that it's a very—I uh, actually heard um, some f- former Pentecostals talking about how they viewed altar time and prayer time at services on the weekend almost like a Catholic views taking the sacrament. Mm-hmm. So if you grew up Catholic, you were basically taught transubstationism or Did I say that right? Basically, the the elements become the actual blood of Jesus and the actual body of Jesus. And so when you make it to Mass and you take the sacrament, that gives you the fuel to basically make it from week to week. And these two Pentecostal guys were talking on a podcast about how they started to view altar time and worship time in a service as that. Mm-hmm. That They couldn't explain it, they couldn't put it into words, they could, I mean, yeah. it just didn't make sense, not even categorically with the Bible, but they had this transformative, transcendent experience on the weekends, mm-hmm. and it was almost like that's the only place they started feeling God. They couldn't feel God on a Monday mm-hmm. in their car driving to work, they couldn't feel God when they sat down on Tuesday morning on the couch with their Bible. It was, man, I can't, I can't wait to get back to service, I need to feel that again. Yeah.
1: Well, it reminds me of another personal story. I used to have a, a guy come over, and he would on his way to work. He would stop at my house, and we would pray really early in the morning. We we just sit at my dining room table and pray together, and um, yeah, we just spent that time, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes in prayer, and then he would he would go to work, maybe eat quick breakfast and go to work. But at the conclusion of most of the prayers that we we would spend t- time together, um, he would say something along the lines of. I, I got something out of that today, or I felt mm. that today, or he would say, I, I didn't really feel that today. And it got to a point where I was like, well, man, I don't know that spending time in prayer is about you feeling something or not feeling something or getting something or not getting something. It's a very uber charismatic way of looking at spending time in prayer. Um, It's a very selfish way of looking at spending sure. time in prayer. And yeah, like you said, it, it, it reduces our worship gatherings or our prayer time down to, did I get goosebumps? Basically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's a very uh, dangerous, very shallow way of looking at worship experience. And sure. yeah, I I have told our congregation before: when the excitement wears off, when the the warm and fuzzies wear off, will you keep doing what you claim to be living? Mm-hmm. Because that's it's going to wear off. Absolutely. And if you're fully convinced that it's truth, that it's the word of God, um, you'll do it, even if it, you know, is just feels mundane.
0: If it feels routine, you'll do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the gift of tongues is, like Gabe explained, uh, this understanding of someone speaking in an unknown language that no one in the room knows, and you see this in the scriptures in a couple places. Uh, you first see this in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 6 through 12, when at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and rested on the apostles, and it says they spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, the word in the Greek that is used for tongues is actually the word dialectico, and that is an actual human language. hmm so what happened in Acts 2 was these people, the apostles, began to speak in actual human languages and spilled out on the streets, and everybody there in Jerusalem for Pentecost heard the gospel being proclaimed in their own language. It was not a, you know, an utterance of an unknown language. It was an actual language, and people that heard them speaking said, I'm hearing the gospel in my language. How can this be? And it was a sign to the people that were unbelievers that Jesus was the Messiah, and to that day, 3,000 people were added to the number of the church. Mm. So that isn't really what you see at Pentecostal worship services. You don't see somebody getting up and most of the time speaking in a utterance of Mandarin Chinese or an utterance of Spanish mm-hmm. or an utterance of Portuguese, right? What you see more of is what's described in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, and that is a heavenly language for personal prayer, And the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 14.2 is not dialectico, it is glossa, and that means the tongue or a language. So it's kind of used interchangeably to describe either someone's tongue or a language. And so that's where we get the word glossolalia, which is this phenomena of speaking in an unknown heavenly language. And so um, this is what Paul says. I'm just going to read it. 1 Corinthians 14.2, he's talking about um, speaking in a tongue. Let's see. 1 Corinthians 14.2, he says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. And so it's this kind of understanding of someone that is speaking to the Lord, praying to the Lord, speaking in a way that is uttering mysteries of the Spirit, but people aren't really understanding what they're saying, but it's a way of connecting with God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So the, the example of Acts 2 and the events happening in Acts 2 are very practical. God is bridging linguistic barriers for the sake of, all those pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem that year are then going to take that gospel and those events and disseminate them all around the places from whence they came, you know, in Mm -hmm. Asia minor and North Africa and, and into Europe even. So that they're very practical, but it seems like in first Corinthians 14, there's almost this different, like very Mm -hmm. intimate language between you and God that you're praying. It's like a, it's like a prayer. It's like a language of prayer almost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, he says also in First Corinthians 14, verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Um, so almost as if like the gift of tongues is this ability either to speak this tongue of angels, that's First Corinthians 13, 1, or a natural language, a tongue of this earth, um, to either connect with the Lord just by like a private prayer language that's between us and the Lord, or to do what happened in Acts 2, to proclaim the gospel to someone who, like you said, bridging linguistic gaps. So how I have seen, and this is just me personally, how I have seen this gift play out um, in day-to-day, I really think that there are times when God might give a missionary reaching an unreached people group this supernatural ability to communicate with them via a language they might not know. Or God may give a missionary or a Bible translator special grace to know and understand language for the purpose of continuing the work of evangelism. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, it's, if you think of it, it's like a, the Holy Spirit um, undoing elements of the, the confusion uh, started in, in Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. So God interacted our, with our language very first, you know, in the Tower of Babel, and he scattered all these languages and confused the languages of the people. And it's like the Holy Spirit is then working to regather these languages and, and allow through, even though these languages have been scattered, the gospel can then go forth through the gift of speaking in those different
0: dialectos. Yeah. So my wife and I went on a mission trip to El Salvador back in 2014, I think. And I studied Spanish all through high school. I studied Spanish in college. But I hadn't used my Spanish in close to probably 10 years at that point. And uh, we were there praying, and, um, man, I was just, like, asking God. I was like, God, I don't really know how this is supposed to work, but would you give me a special grace this week to know and understand Spanish so that I can do the work you're calling us to do, which was evangelism, which was... Um, you know, preaching the gospel, doing kids' programs and stuff like that. And I can't really explain it, but the next day we were on the bus to go to a church somewhere to to do a service, and I could understand Spanish better than I did the day before. Mm-hmm. And I could speak Spanish better than I did the day before. I'm not saying that I became fluent overnight, but I became a lot more in touch with the training I had received in Spanish than I was before that trip. And somebody might say, oh, it's just because you were immersed around the language. And I was like, yeah, maybe. Hmm. But maybe it was the Holy Spirit of the living God giving me this ability and giving me this special grace to know and understand this language better so that I could do the work of evangelism for that week. And I really do think that is categorically what Paul is talking about when he says it's a sign for unbelievers. It's this ability that God gives us to, kind of that you said, bridge this linguistic gap so that we can continue the work of the Lord.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's almost it's almost like man was trying to build this tower for the sake of gaining a name for themselves. God scattered that. Now he's ready to build a name for himself mm-hmm. and he will then regather these languages or cross these linguistic barriers to do that. Yeah, yeah you, you hear stories like that, you know, happening where people will, um, you know, hear, hear someone preaching and they're like, wow, I didn't know they were completely fluent in Arabic. And, you know, the, the Arabic speaker is like, I didn't know they were completely fluent in Arabic. And then someone will be like, no, they, they don't know a lick of Arabic. What are you talking about? Well, right, I heard right. them <laughs> preaching completely fluent in Arabic. And yeah. so, yeah, you hear stories like that happening. It's like, wow, it's, it's really fascinating.
0: Absolutely. Well, and then I think that, the, the gift that Paul is talking about where it's the heavenly language of personal prayer, it is this gift of speaking in a heavenly unknown language for the purpose of connecting that person with God and edifying themselves personally. Mm. And there's a category for that in the Scriptures. Like we read 1 Corinthians 14.2, um, they're praying to God. Uh, Paul says, though I speak with the tongue of men and angels in 1 Corinthians 13.1. Um that's a very that's a mystery to me. I'm not quite sure why God would use that as a way of people mm-hmm. connecting with him, but it seems like categorically that is what's going on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But then there's a separate gift that the scriptures give interpretation of tongues. This is mentioned in two different places, 1 Corinthians 14, 27, 28, and 1 Corinthians 14, 13. And it's a separate gift of the Spirit from speaking in tongues. And it is basically somebody that gives a word of tongues during a service. God might give someone else an interpretation of that. What it, what is it that the Lord is saying to the congregation of people gathered there um, through this person's interpretation? So that's a it's a different gift. Mm-hmm. So the big question, and I think this is where you see a lot of diversity theologically, is who gets the gift. A cessationist would say the first century church, and that's it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. a Pentecostal charismatic says everybody, and a continuationist, which you're a cautious continuationist, a continuationist with a seatbelt and a helmet. Mm -hmm. um, I I guess I would be that way too. I would say God is the one who decides who gets what gifts, and the gifts differ according to God's will.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So it is not that... Everybody has the same gift. Nobody should ever feel inadequate, unloved, or unspiritual if God chooses not to give them a certain gift. It is that some people have these gifts from God that God gives them and other people don't. And that's the mystery of God. Like I'm not very good at drawing. That doesn't mean I'm less human than somebody that's really, really good at drawing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so somebody that God... Gifts with the gift of languages, whether that's an unknown language to, to pray to the Lord or that's being very adept in speaking other languages for the purpose of evangelism, that's that's God's decision that's God's will and that's not my will. that makes sense? Yeah yeah
1: yeah so um, how how I guess let's play it forward here. How do we practically play this out in like a church gathering or a corporate worship setting?
0: Yeah, I think there's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> um, well,
1: because you know you've had this probably people come in off the street and uh, you know they're they're you, you don't know them from Adam. Um, you can judge from physical appearances that maybe you know they slept under a bridge last night or something like that mm-hmm, and they, they mm-hmm. stand up and they give this oration in this these incomprehensible like tongues basically or, or syllables yeah um how do we as a congregation as a you know body a corporate in a corporate setting determine is is that kosher or not kosher? Is that sure. from God or not from God? Let's say he translates and interprets his own message in tongues. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, so there's a lot of, a lot of discernment that we've got sure. to come through, but what does Paul say about that, I guess? Well,
0: First Corinthians 14, starting verse 6, I'll read through 6 through 13. He says, "'Brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge of prophecy or teaching?' If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an undistinct sound, how will you get ready for battle? So with you yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none was without meaning— But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, or because of all these things, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So basically what he says is, guys, if you're coming into a gathering and everybody's just speaking in tongues... And that's what everybody's doing corporately. Like, mm-hmm. what does that benefit? Like, it's it's like you and I, Gabe, and we were both musicians. If We both had our guitars, and we just sort of banged on the guitars without actually forming chords with our hands. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People would be like, is that a song? I did, I've never heard that song. That song's chaotic, and that doesn't sound like anything, right? And so Paul, like, gives some very, very specific guidelines. The first is he says there has to be an interpreter. That's verse 13. The second is, it should be always to build up believers not to show off. That's verse 12. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. I think that's a super, super, super huge gut check for anybody who grew up in the Pentecostal world. Mm. Is this excelling and building up the church, or are you just getting up there and saying, hey, look at me, look how spiritual I am? Um, He says in verse 27 and 28... There should be a limited number of people allowed to speak in tongues in a meeting. He says, let there only be two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if no one's there to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Um, He also, and this is where, (laughs) this is what really calls out, I think, a lot of what you and I it doesn't seem like Paul allows any congregational tongue speaking. Hmm. So I don't know if you remember this, Gabe, but sometimes on our chapel services at Southeastern, we'd have somebody in the mic go, "We're a spirit-filled Pentecostal church or Pentecostal college. Everybody on the count of three, speak to the Lord in your prayer language. one two three And everybody's just And it's like, hmm. that's so unbiblical. Because what Paul says in verse 23 is, if the whole church comes together and everybody speaks in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Hmm. So like, um, yeah, if you've never been to a Pentecostal church and you walk in and everybody's speaking gibberish, you're going to think these people are crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I've totally been there and seen that and witnessed it. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I have friends. I have friends. So I, I grew up in that. And I was kind of used to that, although I, I do identify it as being unbiblical. Um, mm-hmm. But I've been exposed to that numerous times. But I have friends who, um, a couple of years back, they visited an Assembly the God church. Or, no, I, I take that back. I don't know what denomination it was, but it was something kind of um, more old line of Pentecostal. And they were shocked by what they saw because they had never been yeah. exposed to that ever. And so I was kind of chuckling. I was like, yeah, you know, that's. that's you know, on the on the more fringier side of of how I grew up and in, in attending church, mm-hmm. um, and it was gave me a great opportunity to kind of unpack that a little bit for them and say, you know, what was biblical, what was unbiblical about this, you know, and and right. talk through that a little bit. So,
0: yeah, something else Paul says is this gift is controllable.
2: Mm.
0: He says in verse thirty two, the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. So if somebody's like, man, I just couldn't help it. The Lord just started working and I just started barking like a dog. You know, and it's like, (laughs) no. What does it mean by the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets? That means God's given you a mind and common sense and good manners to be able to know. No, that's disruptive. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, So it's controllable by... By the speaker, it's the spirit of the prophets, the subject of the prophets, so it's never to be used in a distracting or disruptive manner. Um, And then Mm -hmm. Paul says this in verse 33 and 40, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In verse 40, he says, All things should be done decently and in order. Mm -hmm. So if you walk in a worship gathering and people are on all fours mooing like cows and... (laughs) And you're laughing, but it's happened, right? And somebody's somebody's you know yelling, and somebody's got a shafar, and they're blowing it, and everybody's just screaming, and somebody's running the aisles, right? Mm. I would see that as a direct violation of the Word of God. Yeah, that church is in disobedience and rebellion against God's Holy Word. God is not a God of confusion; He's a God of peace that when somebody comes in that's an unbeliever, an outsider, they should not go, are these people mentally unsound? They should say, man, I feel the peace of God in this place.
1: Have you ever heard of people uh, running the church? Oh, of course. Like, yeah, you the hop in the pews and running the church. Yeah. Like basically where everyone gets up and simultaneously like starts <laughs> the sprint, sprinting around yeah. <laughs> the, the pews. And the real agile ones stand up on the pews and start hopping them. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so funny how, especially, in the, especially, the, I think it's the Appalachian culture in America, how the Pentecostalism has kind of bred this whole other, uh yeah, display of being filled by the Spirit. I'm going to put air quotes there. But yeah, you, everything between drinking strychnine, handling snakes to, to hop in pews, yeah, you know. Yeah.
0: To, That's an evidence that you're filled with the Spirit. I'm like, man, where is that in the Scripture? Because that is not biblical at all. <laughs>
1: Yeah, this, and and unfortunately, I mean, I mean, we joke and we laugh, but unfortunately, what that ends up doing is profaning the name of God and profaning the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, um, because it's abusing and it's, uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't even know, I don't want to say because I'm not there. I don't really know these hearts, uh, hearts of these people, but I don't know how how much the Holy Spirit is actually present in those environments. <laughs> but yeah, well, it's it's bringing it's bringing. Um, bringing shame on the body Mm -hmm. of Messiah and bringing, like I said, profaning the name of God when we should be setting it apart and making it holier.
0: Yeah, well, look what he says in verse 37 of 1 Corinthians 14. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. Hmm. So, in other words, if somebody reads these prohibitions that Paul gives, where there's not supposed to be congregational tongue speaking, Everybody needs to make sure they're functioning this gift in an orderly manner. And somebody just goes, well, I don't know. I mean, just, you know, we're all... In- no. No. This is from the Lord. This is God's word. And if you're like, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm just not going to follow that, well, then I'm not going to recognize you. You're not spiritual because this is God's word. Um, But here's what's so interesting about this is Paul ends this, says, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. And then he says in verse 39... Do not forbid speaking in
2: tongues.
0: (laughs) It's like, man, we're threading the needle, right? And and in one way, he says, "Man, keep a control on this. Keep a tight watch on this. Make sure this does not go into chaos and madness." But also, don't ever be a church where you're like, "Hey, that doesn't happen, and that's not going to happen here."
2: Mm.
1: And so that's. I wish wish Paul just made a few YouTube videos for us, (laughs) kind of explaining in more detail what he's saying. What do you mean
0: by that, Paul? Yeah, tell us a little bit more. Yeah.
1: I do have like a running mental list of questions I would like to ask the apostle Paul. Yeah. Like, can you give me a little bit more clarification on castrating themselves?
0: Like, what was the deal with that? <laughs> <laughs> like, were you serious no. there? Were like, you serious? Is that, yeah. Do you really want people to do that? Yeah. One of the things that we talk about, this is totally not to do with anything. Uh, we were studying second Thessalonians. We just finished as a church and we did it in our small group. And, at the end, he says, this is how I write. See what large letters I have written with my hands. Mm. And we started talking about this theory that many biblical scholars hold to that Paul's eyesight might have mm-hmm. been really, really, really bad.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've heard that
0: as well. And well, s- you
1: know, that's like a thing um, within, especially like uh, the ultra-Orthodox Jews in these really tight-knit Jewish communities is they have very poor eyesight later in their life hmm. because they study— the Torah all day and they study all these like Jewish texts and stuff. Yeah. And so they just like literally all day they're studying these texts mm-hmm. and their eyes are straining and, you know, many times in like poorly lit environments. Um, but that is, a, that is like a thing people study. Um, eye doctors study those communities because, um, they learn a lot about what causes like, you know, eyesight loss and stuff. So yeah, I think it's very yeah. possible.
0: Yeah. And it's pretty interesting. We were talking about how there's a part where Paul speaks to the high priest, and he doesn't know it's the high priest, and he gets slapped. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, I didn't know that was the high priest. Well, how did he not know that was the high priest? He should have been able to know. Well, if he'd had poor eyesight, maybe not. And then there's another part in Acts 28, I think, where he's throwing sticks on a fire, and he thinks it's a stick, but it's a viper that goes and bites his hand. Yeah. And then, uh, again, at the end of his letters, he always uses a scribe to write his letters, but at the end Mm -hmm. of his letters, he's like, I'm signing this. They're really big letters. This is just how I write. And so you're like, huh.
1: I wonder wonder wonder. if he like, you know, like my five-year-old writes his name, Micah, like in these big crayon letters. I wonder if like (laughs) Paul would like write P-A-E- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Big, giant letters.
0: Let me read you the end of the second Thessalonians. This is what we were laughing about in our group because it just seems really defensive. We were like, why is Paul so defensive? Um, But he says, uh, let me read it. He says, Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. And I just laughed about that. I'm like, that's just kind of funny. Like, it's the way I write, guys. Stop. You know, like, stop making fun of me. It's just the way I write, you know. But then when we started talking about, well, maybe he had poor eyesight. Maybe that's why he didn't write. Well, and I mean that's why he said that, you know.
1: Yeah, but remember, he had his road Damascus experience, right? And he was legitimately blinded. Yeah, but wasn't that sight restored to him?
0: That's what it it or says. Partially the restored. Scales to him? fell off of his eyes. In uh, I think that's Acts nine. So did he like go partially blind again, or did he just never fully regain his eyesight? I don't hmm. know. I mean, that, that's a very fascinating. Again, we're like getting into speculative. Yeah, but I, I theology, would. but. Um, I never
1: pieced those other instances together where, and I mean, he does talk about how there's like a thorn in his side, maybe.
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah. Huh. Well, it does say Acts 18 or Acts nine, verse 18, it says something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Hmm. But it doesn't, I mean, maybe that was a partial regaining of his sight. I don't know. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. I don't know. And maybe that was like a way to remind him of his vision of Jesus through the rest of his life, you know? Who knows? I mean, I don't, again, uh, we'll never know what his thorn in yeah. his flesh is. And I think he doesn't say it specifically so that we can all kind of relate to, oh, yeah, I've got a thorn in my yeah. flesh too, you know? Yeah. So who knows? It's interesting, though. Yeah, it is. Well, cool. Well, Gabe, do you want me to pray for you right now that you receive the gift of tongues? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's been
1: we're pushing the ti- we're pushing the time on these further out every time you know we what? do a podcast.
0: I don't feel bad about it anymore because I've been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Yeah, and the last two episodes were two and a half hours, and I listened to both episodes that were two and a half hours long, and I was like, you know what? If Mike Cosper and Christiana today, Christianity today can put out two-and-a-half-hour podcast episodes, I'm not going to feel bad for going over the one-hour mark in Beards and Bible. So Yeah. Well, there's, like,
1: two different types of podcast listeners. There's, like, the quick 15-minute podcast, and there's, like, I want a three-hour podcast. Yeah. Like,
0: <laughs> like the, So the like entire the, time I'm mowing my yard, I can listen to one episode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so. so I guess we're we're kind of have a foot in either side, but we're leaning
0: towards the three-hour podcast. I guess, Yeah. Anyway, hey, thank you guys for, for listening and for sticking with us through all this. And, uh, man, if you've got questions or comments or you want to just talk about this or maybe if you're local and you want to take somebody out to lunch or coffee and chat about this, man, I'd love to have more conversations with you about this and um, or, or with Gabe if you're local with Gabe too. I'm sure he would love to have conversations about it. But uh, reach out to us, send us an email, send us a Facebook message. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, we will see you guys next time. Happy holidays, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast@gmail.com. gmail.com.